Well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Tonight, this is the last Sunday before Christmas, we turn our attention to Jesus Christ and what the Bible tells us about him. These are, of course, uh, perhaps as you hear them, uh, familiar words. May the Lord help us to hear them afresh as we consider them. John chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 1 through 14, but tonight we'll consider in the sermon just the first five and verse 14. Hear now the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, to know you is eternal life. Uh, To know Jesus the same, we pray that you would help us to know him. Help us to see him as he really is. Help us to respond appropriately. In accordance with his glory, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's the season for Christmas songs and Christmas carols. It's been that season in uh, Walmart, I think, for longer than some of us would normally enjoy. But uh, it's the season in song to celebrate uh, snow and gift giving and family, sometimes reindeer and little old Men who come down chimneys. Some, however, 
celebrate, as we have come together to do, we celebrate the gift of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Our, one of our favorite hymns is uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We open the service with it tonight. The, uh, the original hymn was composed as a hymn for Christmas Day by Charles Wesley. You might turn there just for a second because I want to highlight something for you about this hymn as we we consider what we've been singing and say a few things about it. Uh, the words over the years of this hymn, this Christmas carol, it's on the front page of your bulletin, have been changed and modified over the years in a variety of ways for different reasons. Uh, Wesley's original hymn began with the opening line, Hark, how the welkin rings. Uh, the Welkin, of course, uh, has since been taken out because nobody really knows what that is, although there is the knowledge of what it is. The Welkin in that day was, was the, the only sky, the abode of the deity heavens, if you will, uh, the celestial regions, hark how the celestial regions ring. Uh, the change was made actually by the very famous George Whitfield when he um, put together a collection of hymns, uh, couple of decades after Wesley wrote this and, and changed it to the now familiar Hark the Herald Angels sing. And I think we're all glad they did so. It's just immediately more obvious what we're singing about, right? And I think just about everybody sings it this way, pretty much without complaint. I believe Wesley himself said that's fine. But there's another change you'll hear if you were to listen to closely to any production of Hark the Herald Angels Sing by the very famous Mormon Tabernacle Choir, which has produced album after album of of beautiful Christmas carols, some of which are very much uh, the traditional carols we Christians have come to know and love. But in this case, with Hark the Herald Angels Sing, they changed the second stanza. We sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, uh, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Well, that, that's how we sang it tonight. Uh, but, but Mormons changed the middle line. They don't sing veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Instead, they sing, veiled in flesh, our Lord is he, Savior through eternity. Now, that is more than just a stylistic change. It doesn't make the choir sound any better. It's a change uh, to not to make it more understandable, as if this is a, uh, completely uh, foreign to us, what this is saying. But it's actually a change on a kind of a theological uh, disagreement Mormons have with traditional Christians. Because Mormons don't believe that Jesus is the one true and everlasting God. For them, Jesus is not the eternal deity in human flesh. For Mormons, they might sing about him as being Lord, or sing about him being Savior, being born of the Virgin Mary, but Jesus is not the incarnate Deity. He's not God of God, light of light, as we'll sing 
in our next hymn. The very heart of the truth of Christianity, the heart of our celebration of the birth of Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man, God with us, the Mormon religion denies. And so understandably from their perspective, they've changed the words of the hymn. Uh, and this is not a diatribe <laughs> against our, our Mormon neighbors and, and friends. Um, many people have trouble singing and swallowing the theology of these hymns. Uh, another example that, that Mormons will do is in the hymn, Holy, 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 where it was written to explicitly praise the, the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians sing uh, God in three persons, Blessed Trinity. Mormons sing God in his glory, Blessed Deity. You have to take out the language of Father, Son, and Spirit as a trinity. And they do that, friends, just so we understand. They do that because they don't believe in the doctrine of the trinity or the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus Christ in the way that Christians have always understood from the Bible, those things. But, but again, they're not the only ones who do this. Um, perhaps you're here tonight a bit skeptical and find it difficult to sing enthusiastically. Uh, God in the flesh. Uh, or maybe you're confused about it. Maybe you're a Christian, but you, you don't quite know how to put it all together in your head exactly or articulate it. Or, or maybe you read Time magazine. Or uh, you've been in a, in, in a college classroom where, where a professor of religion with a PhD, and I know this doesn't happen at J, JBU, they believe in the divinity of Jesus, um, but maybe you've, you've been in those kinds of classes where, where uh, with great confidence, somebody much smarter than you said, well, you know, the Bible never really says Jesus is God. And that's just something the church Christians over the next 400 years kind of came around to, to justify worshiping him. Well, that's out there, friends. A lot of people believe those things. Well, John has a word for us in this text about just this issue, about who Jesus really is. And he doesn't begin with the account of his, uh, his nativity, his conception, or his birth, as the other gospel writers do, as we read in Luke. But he begins even further back in time. And the text is one of the most clear and explicit about the divinity, the full divinity of Jesus Christ. So that so that there would be no mistaking and no misunderstanding so that Christians wouldn't be confused or, or, um, or have their conscience troubled about actually worshiping a man who walked upon the earth and who died on a cross. No, friends, it's important that we see Jesus rightly. Not just so we can say that Jesus... Um, not so. We've got to see him rightly because if we see him wrongly, we might be tempted to say something like, well, Jesus is, was an amazing guy. Jesus was a, a, a greater religious leader than the world has ever seen. Jesus was really spiritual and he knew more about, you know, the world we can't see than any of us. But, but he's not God come from there to here. He's just one of us trying to help lead us to there. We won't say that if we understand what John is saying about Jesus. We need to understand him 
rightly so that we can actually turn to him and say, my Lord and my God. And so that we can have the confidence to turn to him to find grace and truth in our time of need. So this is a passage which uh, reminds us that something astounding has happened. Uh, C.S. Lewis captures uh, something of this in his Chronicles of Narnia. When you get to the very final book in The Last Battle, when uh, Tyrion and Lord Diggory, if you remember this children's literature... They're looking into a stable, and there's this statement that inside the stable was bigger than the outside. And Lucy says, in our world too, a stable once had something in it bigger than the whole world. Well, that's what John is telling us here. And it's meant to bring wonder and awe and reverence and joy to our hearts as we catch a glimpse of his glory. So let me highlight a number of things we see here about this God who is infinite, who became finite, the eternal one entering time, the invisible becoming visible in Jesus. Uh, Let me highlight six things in the first place. In the first place, John begins here at verse one, in the beginning was the word. And here he's reminding you about the pre-existence of Jesus. He's telling you that Jesus had no beginning. He predates the beginning. When he says in the beginning, John, uh, you can imagine, is picking up the language of the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1 verse 1 where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now he's saying in the beginning, Jesus already was. He He's before the atoms. He's before light. He's before the stars, the universe, mankind. When all of that came into being, he was already there. As the Apostle Paul puts in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So in the beginning was the word. There never was a time when he began. There never was a time when he was not. That's the pre-existence of Jesus. But then he talks about the co-existence of Jesus. That's the second thing. Notice his language. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was God, and he was with God. God with God. God is his language. (laughs) And he's using a tiny little preposition with that can mean towards, uh, even movement towards. And it it bears the idea of of, of face to face, uh, that the Father and the Word were two distinct persons face to face with one another, towards one another, that within, within the Godhead, Uh, There is this fellowship, there is this communion of persons, there is this loving relationship of a father and his son, and a son with his father, delighting in one another, loving one another, with the Holy Spirit, the three-personed God. One God, eternally existing in this loving relationship, before he ever brought into being. Any of this that we see with our eyes. The word here, he says, is distinct from God the Father, with God, and yet was God. 
this is uh, this will uh, help you when you get to statements that Jesus himself makes in, in the Bible. When, he st- dis- when on the one hand, uh, he affirms that I am the Father and the Father is in me. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I and the Father are one. Uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, there's, in other words, Jesus says, there's me. And there's the Father. And I'm so like the Father that to know me is to know the Father. And yet, I am not the Father and the Father is not me. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Um, So that as Christians, one of the things that we don't say is that it was the Father who came to do the will of the Son. But, But it was the Son who came to do the will of the Father. We don't say that it was the Father who enfleshed and got crucified and died upon a cross, but that it was the Son who enfleshed and was crucified and died upon the Son. So we see something here not only of his preexistence and his coexistence, but we see John's clear affirmation so that you don't misunderstand anything we've just said. That, in fact, not only in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but the Word was, or and the Word was, God. (laughs) Fully God, not less. Not anything less than God. Not a minor God, uh, not a a created angel that's sort of above humanity, but below divinity. No, none of that. Fully God. And there's... There's a massive amount of confusion in the world today about this. And we don't want you to misunderstand. John doesn't want us to. There are a lot of wrong views about Jesus. Views that that contradict the Bible. That contradict God's own revelation of himself. Uh, And usually those views make Jesus out to be far simpler and easier to understand. Rather than complicating things more than they already perhaps seem to you. Uh, The Bible says he's fully God and fully man in one person. He is the distinct nature of God, fully God. And he is the distinct nature of man, fully man. And these two natures are in one person. (laughs) And this person, the Son, is co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, 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 maybe your head's about to explode. <laughs> you, you were hoping to come to a Christmas sermon about a baby in a manger and, and, a, and a sweet mama loving her child. I understand. And now we're all wrapped up in this, this, this language, which uh, admittedly, uh, it's, it's difficult for words even to explain and for us to get our heads completely wrapped around. Um, but just recognize that most false views of the Bible actually try to make this a lot simpler and easier. Uh, But in doing so, they end up denying something about who Jesus really is. So um, so John is saying uh, one thing, but we know that uh, over the course of time, uh, a group called the Arians in the 4th century began to say something very different. They thought of Christ as being inferior to God but superior to man, something in between God and man. But John is right here waiting for them ahead of time. The word was God. 
And now in our own day, while we don't have people who self-describe ordinarily as Arians, there are folks who are called Jehovah's Witnesses who, witnesses who hold uh, the essentially identical doctrine about Jesus. In their version of the Bible, it's a different kind of translation, the New World Translation, they, they write this. If you've ever interacted with a Jehovah's Witness about this, you'll know that they write, that their, their version says the word was with God and the word was a God. A, lowercase g, God. Not the God of gods, but a, some smaller, some less significant sort of demigod among the pantheon of gods or what have you. And the problem with that is that's not what John says. And it's not grammatically or contextually compatible with what John writes. John didn't say Jesus was a God, some minor deity. He said that Jesus was God. And notice also that this passage doesn't say that that Jesus became God. Or even became fully God, but that he was fully God. And here again... In later days, the group we were discussing earlier, the Mormons, they teach that man became God, and so can you. They teach that Jesus became God, and so can you. But this passage actually flips that around. It says God became man. He became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. He added to himself humanity without ceasing his divinity. And so he's always been fully God. And this is, again, in contrast to Unitarianism, where there's, you've heard of Unitarian churches. And the Unitarians believe that there is one person who is God, and Jesus isn't God. Unitarians teach that there's one God in one person where only the Father is God. Only he is eternal or divine. There's, there's just one Godhead in one person, not tri-person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is just a man, close to God maybe, a religious leader of some sort, but that's not what this passage is teaching. And this passage isn't teaching what's commonly called modalism, which means that it's the idea that, that there's one God who just manifests himself at different times in different modes or ways of existence. Like an actor who puts on a different mask, takes it off and puts on another one. So this idea would be that there's one God in one person who sometimes wears the mask of father, who takes it off and sometimes wears the mask of son takes it off and sometimes wears the mask of Holy Spirit. But this passage isn't teaching that at all. It says Jesus is God with God. And we're seeing here the two persons of the Trinity, of which the rest of the Bible makes clear there's three. So that there is one God. One in, when you speak of the Godness of God, whatever his nature or essence, whatever it is that makes God God, that that. We don't want to say thing, we don't want to think of some substance, some created stuff, but the essence and nature of deity, there is one divine deity, but he eternally exists in a plurality of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And there's nothing quite like that in uh, human analogy on the earth. We, I think we've all heard sort of illustrations that try to, you know, whether you, you take up an egg or a tree or water in its three states and you try to state, you know, there's oneness and there's threeness. All analogies sort of break down uh, either emphasizing too much threeness against oneness or too much oneness against threeness. It's a, it'll make your mind explode. And, and the early church had to wrestle with this question. Uh, the early church had to struggle through, how do we talk about who God is using the language and ideas the Bible teaches? Um, the great Augustine once said, with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity, that we speak in order not to remain silent. In other words, we have to say something in order not to remain silent in the face of those who are saying something the Bible doesn't teach us. <laughs> Heresy forces us to talk about who God truly is. But we can say more about what he isn't than we can positively say about what he is. But, you know, at the famous council in 325, the the council concluded rightly that Christ, the Son of God, is the same substance or essence or nature of God himself. And yet... Also, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 noted that he's also true man, true God, but true man. So that they wrestled with, well, he, he's really, truly God. Then, then with regard to his humanity, was it, was it fake? Was it, uh, was it a ghost? Uh, were people just seeing things? Um, did he have a real body, a real head, real arms, real emotion, real thoughts? Was he really human? And they concluded, yes, he's fully human and fully God, two natures in one person. And they're just agreeing with what the Bible says when Paul says, or when the Apostle John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Now, I'm done with that part of the sermon. Let's just say this about all that. If your head hurts. I understand. But just think of it this way, in part at least. A God small enough to be completely understood by us is not a God big enough to be worshipped and adored by us. We're finite and we're fallen. We're small, we're limited, and we're actually corrupted by the fall. And God is none of those things. And so we worship him rightly. And we need to understand who he is from what his word says. So we see his preexistence, his coexistence, his eternal uh, divinity. And then we see in the fourth place, he's the creator. John goes on to say, all things, verse 3, were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, creation itself is a work of God the Son. As Paul puts it in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's Jesus. And and so we can say this, if not the slightest thing was created without him, then nothing was created without him. And therefore he himself cannot be a created thing. See, even if, even if you got a bad translation of John 1, verse 1, Paul, or the Apostle John meets you at verse 3, and he again shows you that Jesus is true God. 
And you'll find this, and you can actually argue this in, in the New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witness. You can show them verse 3. John says that all things were made by him. Unless you want to say that, well, he was the first thing made, and then he made everything else. John is right there to meet you when he says not only were all things made by him, but there was not anything that was made um, that he didn't make. And so he created all things. He created you. He created you for his own glory. And you belong to him because he made you. Now, the fifth thing he says is that he's the source of life. Uh, He is the fountain from which the river of life flows. Uh, His life wasn't given to him. His life is inherently in him, innately in him. He is the source of all life. And so when later John tells us that Jesus said things like, I am the way and the truth and the life, you can believe him. And if you want physical life, not that you could want it before you had it, but if you wanted it, you'd have to get it from him as a gift, just as you already have. So likewise, if you want spiritual life, if you want eternal and everlasting life, you get it from him as a gift. It flows from him. And the last thing we'll highlight here is that about this God, he became man. Notice verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. He incarnated, he enfleshed. He he didn't lay aside his divinity or throw it off. God can't cease to be God. But he added to himself true humanity without ceasing his divinity. The old theologians put it this way. He became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. What was he? He was divine. And yet he became fully human. Now, you ask yourself, then why didn't people, every time they saw him, why didn't they just fall at his feet and worship? Why didn't they just know that he was God? And the answer to that, we sang about, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. There was a kind of veiling of all those infinite, eternal attributes of power and glory and majesty and might, Veiled, as it were, in the flesh of Christ for a good purpose. Why would God do that? Well, what, let me ask you, what sinful human being could see God in all his unveiled glory? His uncovered majesty and beauty and perfection and holiness. All his pure and perfect love and pure and perfect wrath. What, what sinful human could stand in the presence of that divine being and not be destroyed under the blazing light and heat of his glory? I mean, even the unfallen, sinless angels in heaven cover their eyes before the face of the Holy One. So likewise us, we needed him to, to become man and to veil for a time his majesty. In order that he might become like us and live among us, that that God might be safe to be near, safe for us. And so John says that's what he did. He tabernacled. He dwelt among us. He picks up the Old Testament language of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the place where God set up camp 
in the midst of Israel. He built a tent, a building in the midst of his people where he dwelled symbolically, God in the midst of man. And he went with them. When they, when, when, when they were told to move somewhere else, the tent moved with them. God among his people, living with his people so that they could come before him and enjoy his presence. And so that is what Jesus says. He is God made man. He is the place where heaven and earth meet, where God and man meet safely because Jesus mediates between God and man. He therefore can safely guarantee to you all of his benefits, the fullness of his salvation. And so the great thing about Christmas, friends, to put it in crass commercial terms, is not the deal you got on Black Friday, right? It's not you can get more for less, no money down, buy now and pay later. But the great thing about Christmas in crass commercial terms is you can get all that God has promised to all who believe in him with no money down, no payments due later, because the Father has given everything to his Son, all things belong to him, and he shares them with all who trust in him. Therefore, let us worship him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you and thank you that you are an open-handed, liberal, generous, giving God who spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all to death upon a cross that we might be restored and reconciled and invited to be friends again with you through Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to know the blessings of that and to enjoy the experience of that and to have the hope of glory, Christ in us, and to look forward to our own face-to-face meeting one day because of him. For we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.